Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Christmas from the Beginning of Time. So let's open our Bible to the book of Genesis as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Genesis of Christmas. I've always loved the book of Genesis. It's one of my top three favorite books in the First Testament. I love Genesis not only because of the dramas found in the book, from the sweeping creation account to stories of petty family quarrels. I mean, the book seems to cover it all, and indeed, it does. The book is key to understanding the whole Bible. Understand the book of Genesis well, and the entire Bible begins to make sense. Fail to understand it, and you know, the Bible will always appear like a series of disconnected stories. That's because almost every biblical doctrine, yeah, there are some exceptions, but the great bulk of biblical teaching is found in a seminal form in this book. Also, the entire biblical drama is based upon the foundation that this important book lays down. Genesis tells us what God is up to. Everything from why God created the world to what's happening in the world today is found in Genesis. Genesis teaches us about sin and the need for salvation. It teaches us that God is in control and that all things are moving forward at the speed he has chosen and according to his designs. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Genesis contains all the background necessary for understanding the meaning of Christmas. Genesis 3.15, which we covered in the last message, a passage that describes what happened after the fall into sin, promises that a descendant of the woman is coming who will ultimately and completely crush Satan himself. This is the first hope of a Messiah and the first promise of Christmas. And with that, a drama begins to play itself out in the pages of this book, a drama orchestrated by God and a drama in the real history of the beginnings of the ruined human race. After Eve has been promised that one of her descendants will crush the power of Satan and end the ruinous effects of the fall, Genesis 4 tells us that she's intimate with her husband Adam and she conceived and bore a son in whom they named Cain. Genesis 4 verse 1 records her as saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now in today's world, children are born all the time, but this is the very first child ever born. And so we have to imagine the sense of wonder and sheer amazement at what Eve was experiencing. But please also notice that given that she has heard the promise that one of her offspring will crush the head of the evil one, it's only natural that we should think that this might be the one. And her sense of optimism that this has come because of God's help indicates that she has an optimistic confidence that in this birth, God has come down the effects of sin are going to be quickly reversed. But of course, she's so deeply disappointed. Rather than this being the savior of the human race, this child will grow and become the first murderer as he will murder his younger brother. And with Genesis 4, we see two themes juxtaposed. One is the theme of hope, and the other is the theme of crushing disappointment and despair. The hope that God would not forget his people and would send a savior is always there but the reality that sin becomes increasingly dark, launching the human race further into its rebellion, that also is a glaring reality. And of course, that theme of hope and despair is something that all of us today can understand. After all, isn't that the very nature of the life that we experience? Whether it's the great hope of youth and the falling curtain at the end of life, all of life begins with hope 
and ends with a cry of despair. But of course, Genesis is different, for the hope is not a vain hope. It's a hope that the Creator God Himself will send the promised Savior who will crush the power of Satan and sin. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis 4, in verse 25, the hope is rekindled. It simply says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. You know, is Eve hopeful again or simply trying to replace her dead son? Please understand that Eve can never think of her children the way that we do. As each child is born, she thinks of the promise, and with the birth of Seth, her hope is once more renewed. Now, is she right to hope, or is she simply to be disappointed again? Well, part of that is the answer to the next verse. It says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So it would seem that in an increasingly rebellious lawless and violent society, Seth and his offspring seemed to represent a turning to God and a hope that perhaps one of them was the long-awaited Savior for the plight of the human race. But again, as before, the reader of Genesis is disappointed. Soon, by the time we get to Genesis 6, the violence of the earth is so great that the godly line of Seth is almost eclipsed, finally leading to the story of a universal flood and the judgment on the human race, For a while, it seems that judgment will win over hope, and the promise of Genesis 3.15 seems ruined. But of course, with the account of Noah and the flood, the human story begins again only to lead to the story of the Tower of Babel and the beginning of a civilization that stands in opposition to God. It seems like the hope of Genesis 3 is further off than we ever could have imagined. But again, as before, Genesis takes us to one man, one seed of the woman, and thus the hope of the one that would crush Satan is again reborn. Genesis 12 introduces us to the story of Abraham and the hope that a blessing would yet come to the human race. Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3 tells us that God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation and that in Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. Again, the hope is rekindled. But Abraham is told that he is not the one to crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 15 records that the fulfillment of Genesis 3 verse 15 is further off than we thought. Genesis 15 verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years, that seems like a long time. And so it's quite clear that the promise is yet some time away. And it's also clear that the book of Genesis will not record the fulfillment of the hope of Genesis 3.15. And so we are left with a promise and an expectation that God's people need to wait patiently and they need to hope. And by the way, if I can interject here, have you noticed that one of the favorite hymns that people love to sing at Christmas is the old carol, O Holy Night? The carol begins with the words, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. And the song wants us to remember the night when Christ was born. But in the next verse, after the celebration of that one holy night, it goes as follows. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And then the chorus, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See, when we think of Christmas, at least so the carol goes, we should think of that promise that came after a very, very long time. And that's what Genesis tells us. 400 years is just the length of time that the descendants or the seed of Abraham will be in bondage in Egypt. And even then, 
Genesis does not tell us how long until the hope of Genesis 3.15 will be revealed. But in the meantime, the book of Genesis builds on the expectation, constantly reminding us that the people of God are to feed on the hope that is to come. But just when, when we think that we understand the book of Genesis, that each generation was to look forward with expectation that perhaps the one who would destroy Satan and evil would come in their time, we come to an unanticipated twist. Abraham and Sarah are finally visited by the Lord in their old age, and Sarah, the barren woman of 90, conceives and bears a son whom they will call Isaac. Isaac may not be the one who destroys Satan, but with his birth, the hope is alive and it will not die. That is, until we come to Genesis 22. You know, that chapter begins with these words. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And with that, the reader of Genesis is left to contemplate the horror of what's being said. You know, for one, it was the pagan gods surrounding Abraham that demanded child sacrifice. But the one true creator God is not touched by evil. So we need to ask ourselves, how can such a thing happen? How can God command such a thing? And then the second question, a much more significant question is this. How can the one true God kill the child who is the fulfillment of the hope of Genesis 3.15. Is God really going to keep his promises after all? Is Satan to go unpunished? Is the human race to go unredeemed? At first blush, that seems to be the case. For the command to kill Isaac is a command that would seem to end the hope. But here we are reminded that God cannot lie, that his promises cannot fail. The Messiah must yet come. And so we see that Genesis is wonderfully playing out a theme, this hope that the darkness is going to end, this long-expected Messiah will come. But will he actually come? That's the question that we're left with. Hi, Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. On behalf of the entire ministry team, I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Thank you for tuning in to this station and supporting the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with your prayers and financial gifts. May we together take pleasure in the festivities of the season, but also keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds the promise of God kept through the arrival of His Son. Christmas reminds us that God keeps His promises. His Son would make the ultimate sacrifice that we might be forgiven and enter into a renewed relationship with our Father in Heaven. If you feel lost, lonely, or troubled this season, remember He came that you might have life. The child of God is never alone. Merry Christmas, and may this message of the season fill you with the joy and hope that can only come from a promise kept. Many Bible teachers have pondered what the command of Genesis 22 actually entails. You know, some argue that God's command to sacrifice Isaac on the altar is a command for Abraham to find God more precious than his son, to give him up. You know, but if that were the test, we need to ask a very serious question. Does God actually test Abraham by asking him to kill his son? 
Well, the answer to that is found in Genesis 22. I mean, the place where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son is on Mount Moriah, which is on the hill above Jerusalem. Now, you might remember that Jerusalem was inhabited at that point in time and that their king is mentioned several chapters earlier. His name is Melchizedek. And so just above the city of Jerusalem, in full view of the city, Abraham builds an altar preparing to slaughter his son on top of it as he looks down on the city. But let's not get to that moment too quickly. Before Abraham and his son Isaac arrived to the top of that mountain, verse 4 and 5 says, On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Now, here's a vital and important question. When Abraham told his servants who journeyed with him to Mount Moriah that both he and the boy would return, is he lying about that? Or does he actually believe that the two of them would return together? The answer to that is key to our understanding of this entire account. Now, if we go to the New Testament book of Hebrews, we find that the New Testament actually discusses that very question and provides us with an answer. I'm reading Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested and offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So if the writer of Hebrews is right, and I'm sure he is, for he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to interpret Abraham for us, then Abraham's word to his servants was no lie, but actually reflected his faith. He believed that if God called him to tie his son to the altar and thrust a knife through the boy, that God would raise him up from the dead. And that's because Abraham, the man of faith, knew that God simply can't break his promises. Everything that God said would occur no matter what happened along the way. And of course, Genesis 22 tells us what occurred. As Isaac lay on the altar that he and his father had built, and as Abraham's knife was held above the boy to strike him, the angel of the Lord called to him saying, don't harm the boy. And then as Abraham looks, he sees a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And he takes the ram and offers him in place of his son Isaac, and he and the boy return even as Abraham has promised. But what does that story mean? Why go through such a drama which left every heart pounding? Why would God demand this? And the answer is only partially given to us in Genesis, but the answer is played out in the rest of our Bible. In 2 Samuel 24, King David has sinned, and in consequence of his sin, a plague breaks out in the city of Jerusalem, and David is horrified at the consequence of his sin. He watches as the angel of the Lord stands with an outstretched sword over the city. But what is fascinating about that account is the exact place where the angel of the Lord was standing. He's standing, we're told, at the threshing floor of Arowana the Jebusite. Now, back in the day, after people harvested their wheat, they would build threshing floors on high places where the wind would freely blow and thus drive away the light chaff from the heavier wheat. Arowana owned the high place right above Jerusalem at the very spot where a thousand years earlier, Abraham had stood to sacrifice his son. On that very spot, David sacrificed animals to the Lord as a sin offering, and the plague against God's people was stopped. One generation later, on that very spot again, indeed, 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1 tells us, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, 
where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place where David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so there for many years, rams and cattle and sheep were sacrificed as a daily reminder of sins in the hope that the one who would one day crush the head of the serpent and end sin once and for all would finally come. 2,000 years after Abraham, 1,000 years after David, and then after Solomon's temple was built, Jesus himself, as a baby, would be brought to that place to be presented to the Lord, and the priest who was to present him held him up high and said, Now my eyes have seen your salvation. And over 30 years later, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and cleanse that temple, and in the end, he himself would be Abraham's ram caught in the thicket, the one who was slain on the altar of God so that Isaac and all the Isaacs of the world, that is, those who put their hope in God, would be released from judgment and would be spared from death. So I hope you can see that the drama of Genesis chapter 22, that of Abraham offering up his son on Mount Moriah, is but a picture the great God would offer up his son on that mountain to atone for sins of the whole world. The picture of Genesis 22 is a picture of hope that God's people would not die because of their sins, but that God would provide a ram who would destroy sin. And of course, with Genesis 22, we're only halfway through the amazing book of Genesis. The story of hope may have reached a zenith in chapter 22, but the hope of Christmas is hardly done. In the course of time, Isaac would grow to become a man, Mary, and he would have a son named Jacob. And Jacob, through a complicated series of events, receives the Abrahamic blessing. And so Jacob serves as the next generation of hope that the promise of God was not going away. As Jacob sleeps one night, fleeing on his way to Haran, Genesis 28 verse 12 says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set on the earth, and on top of it reached to heaven. And then in that very place, Jacob hears the voice of God, and there he hears that through him all the earth will be blessed. The promise of the Messiah will come through Jacob's descendants. Moving quickly to the end of Genesis, we find Jacob again, now as an old man, and he's lying on his deathbed. He's surrounded by his sons, and he speaks a dying prophetic word to each one of his 12 sons. The oldest son, Reuben, is told that he will no longer have preeminence that Levi and Simeon are cursed because of their anger, and, and so forth. Some of the boys are given a stern rebuke with the hope that they would repent. I mean, clearly Jacob sees that his descendants are anything but perfect. They hardly look like the crew that's going to crush the head of Satan and defeat sin. Rather, their greatest task is to repent of their very own sin. But as Jacob methodically and carefully brings a word to each one of his boys, he stops and gives a long prophetic word to one of his sons, and we might be surprised at what he says. For we might have thought that Joseph would have received the greatest blessing, but that's not so. The greatest blessing is reserved for one of his sons named Judah. Let me read that part of what Jacob says from Genesis 49, verses 8 and 10. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
So much could be said about these words, but they wonderfully sum up everything that the book of Genesis anticipates. The scepter or the ruler's staff will come to Judah's descendants, and that staff of rulership will never leave the descent of Judah. Indeed, Judah's descendant is no minor king. The obedience of all the peoples is his, or all the world will be ruled by Judah's offspring. And there we have the hope of Genesis 3.15. One of Judah's seed will rule the world. That's why the book of Matthew, when it tells the Christmas story, begins with a genealogy. The book of Jesus, the Messiah, it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David, of course, was the great king from the tribe of Judah who is told that the Messiah would come from him. And that's why the wise men showed up in Jerusalem and said, where is he who is born king of the world? And this is the genesis of Christmas. In a world of sin and despair, the promise of a savior, the one who would deliver the world from sin is never missing. God would come, would crush Satan, redeem his people. God would keep his promise and send a powerful king who would rule over this world and the ruler's staff would never depart from him. And that's what we have on that wonderful morning when the great king of the world is born. He is the fulfillment of everything that Genesis spoke of. That is the Genesis of Christmas and that is the final outcome of all that the book of Genesis had longed for. John, that was amazing. You covered 46 chapters in like 20 minutes. I don't think I've ever seen that happen before. But I think it goes to the point that you made earlier that, you know, unless we understand the Old Testament, we really don't understand Christmas. Yeah, but I need to say to you that in the 46 chapters, I might have missed just a few details somewhere along the way. But I tried to capture the storyline as it goes. And when you hear the story of any book of the Old Testament, it should lead us to Christ and the coming of Christ into the world. So any proper reading of the Old Testament leads us to understand that if we only ended with Malachi, we'd have an incomplete book. We'd say, I mean, you know, where, where does it, it's not end yet. I mean, it seems to have stopped at, at, at a place where we long for the fulfillment. And that's why when we open up the pages of the New Testament and hear the coming of Christ, it should just rush in on us and say, what a glorious moment this is. That's why Christmas is so much fun. What a great message. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This year, God has blessed the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada with both the increased opportunity and provision to teach the Bible. It's undeniable that His helping hand has been at work as we reflect on everything He has allowed Back to the Bible Canada to accomplish on His behalf. Now we look forward to all He has in store for 2023. This calendar year end, Back to the Bible Canada has a goal to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will help position the ministry to carry out all the plans God has crafted for His glory. Now, each of us has the privilege to participate in sharing the gospel through the trustworthy teaching of His Word. Your partnership plays a crucial role in ensuring the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and we are beyond grateful for it. To offer a gift toward our year-end goal, just call 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.